Bob and Jeremy's Conflap. The Reality Podcast. Hello, and welcome back to part two of my interview with the actor Ed Stoppard. Now, you may not have listened to part one. Perhaps you've skipped straight to part two, you devil. If you have, then I hope you get something from this. Ed's talking about a number of things. He talks about what he does when he's not doing. How does somebody rest and rest well? And we talk more about the business itself, the challenges it proposes to any actor, any creative. We also talk about his father, the playwright Tom Stoppard, and the creative process. We were technologically challenged, so bear with me. What you have in this episode is me re-recording the questions I asked Ed and try not to interrupt the flow in any way. So sometimes you might be inferring the question you think I've asked. Now, what I kicked off with was asking him, what does he do in between acting? It always annoyed me when people used the term resting and they would challenge me with what I was doing. I only had a go at it for about eight years and was no success in any shape or form. And now, of course, I do different things. But I asked Ed, what does he do between acting? Because it's a tough gig. Most of the profession are not in work at any one time. Yes, things are changing. We have new dramas. We have moved away a great deal from the reality TV world. But theatre, as I record this, Theatres are still dark, meaning closed. So this is my first thing. Let's have a listen to how he gets on with that question. Um, just keep keeping it topical for a moment. Um, COVID, uh, certainly at the beginning of COVID, when you know some of us were slightly blasé about the whole thing. We're not now, but at the beginning of COVID, I was sort of joking to my wife and one or two people that actually this was the kind of best period of unemployment I'd ever had because, you know, um, one of the kind of grievances of normal unemployment as an actor is the certain knowledge that David Tennant is in South Africa being paid a huge amount of money to do some wonderful bit of television or film or something. Uh, so the certain knowledge that not only David Tennant, but Tom Cruise, Leonardo DiCaprio and Ryan Gosling, not to mention Meryl Streep, <laughs> but they were all also sitting at home thinking, Christ, what the hell, what's, what's going on? Uh, that made the whole thing much easier to stomach. That mm. said, um, uh, it, I think it really is. Well, first of all, I'm going to sort of um, give you a piece of advice that was given to me by the aforementioned Nigel Lindsay, who I mentioned earlier, who's an actor, a friend of mine. Uh, when I first started out, Nigel had been working for a good few years. And he said, listen, um, you're going to have periods where you're unemployed. But look, if you do, you know, half a day on an episode of, a, of EastEnders, or if you do, you know, um, a, a commercial, if you do a voiceover for one hour, uh, that pays you 150 quid. That is work. That is a day's work. So if you have a clock running of number of days I've been unemployed in your head, 
Well, you know, if you go and do a voiceover for 45 minutes in Soho and you get 125 quid, you've worked. Reset the clock. Zero. You have, you know, you, you, you know, the following day, you've been unemployed for less than 24 hours. And that was actually really good mm. advice to him. In fact, I mean, you know, he even said, if you do a rehearsed reading of a play and they give you 30 quid cash in hand, that is work. You work today, clock resets. Because it's kind of a little bit like that, you know, we talked about, you know, why actors who struggle stay in the industry. And I said, well, I think maybe one of the reasons is because it's always possible that you will get your quote unquote break and change your life. And in the sort of same vein, I think it's it's a trap that actors can fall into where they kind of think, well, it's only a day on EastEnders or it's only a voiceover, it's only a rehearsed reading. And I think it's a it's a good mentality to think, no, all right, you know, no, it's I'm not working with David Fincher, but I am working. <laughs> and actually, I had more fun doing that rehearsed reading for 30 quid cash in hand for two hours than I would have done doing any number of other normal jobs that would also pay me 15 pounds an hour, if not less. So sod it. Yeah, I worked today and that's what I did. So that's you know, one thing that's sort of, you know, that's um, kind of more intellectual uh, than practical, but it's it's, it's a really useful mindset, um, I have found. But you are going to have extended periods of unemployment. Um, There's just no two ways about it. And I've had times when I've, you know, got quite down uh, and have not been very good at filling my time. And have more just sort of lived in hope, staring at my phone, willing it to ring, you know, with good news. But I've learned over the years, no, no you've just, you know, you've got to, ha- you know, you've got to do something. And so, you know, uh, I do do things like Tai Chi and I do do things like sit and sort of do a bit of mindfulness. Uh, I took up archery a couple of years ago and I'm lucky enough to have a garden that's sort of just big enough for me to safely do a bit of archery. So that kind of kills two birds with one stone because it's also quite kind of meditative. It's quite, you have to be quite present to sort of do it, you know, properly. Um, so that's something I do. Um, I've actually during COVID has finally driven me, God help us all to writing something, something my wife has been badgering me to do for decades. And during COVID, I finally sort of, you know, I looked along my bookshelf and thought, no, no, uh, you know, um, no, I don't think I'll try and adapt Jonathan Franzen's The Corrections. That feels like a bit of a high bar to, to get over. But anyway, uh, I saw one book. Uh, I won't tell you what it was. It was by a, a dead Russian. I'll let I'll say that much. And thought, actually, I would quite like to sort of turn that into a script in some fanciful fashion. Anyway, so I've been doing that a bit ad hoc, but I've been doing that for the last few months, which has actually been a really, really helpful kind of lodestar um, to sort of center me. Um, but, you know, it can be lots of things. You know, a lovely, lovely Australian actor called Philip Quast that people might well know. Brilliant actor, wonderful uh, musical theatre actor, straight actor. Um Phil Quast, he had like a woodworking shed and I still have this kind of pizza pizza paddle made of beautiful wood and carved, which he carved for me. 
Uh, and he'd do that. And there are lots and lots of things. They don't have to earn you money, but they might possibly earn you a bit of pocket money. But it's just good to have something so mm. that it can just sort of anchor you. It, you know, it can sort of almost be anything. But, you know, I've come to realize that it's essentially a kind of self-esteem thing. You know, none of us like to kind of look in the mirror as we brush our teeth at night and think, well, you didn't do anything today, you lazy fucker, you know, bastard, pardon my French. Um, so if you can literally just go, well, yeah, I didn't work as an actor, but, you know, I, you know, I did a bit of this and I did a bit of that and I went for a run, you know, and, and it can be as simple as, you know what, and I helped three children with their homework and, you know, put them to bed not feeling angst-ridden about their Spanish vocab or whatever the hell it is. You know, those are all things that can just sort of ground you a bit and centre you a bit. So, you know, as I say, I try and keep busy. I'm much, much, um, you know, I, I'm less good at that than many people, but better than some. Uh, and I think it's, 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 important because we are all going to go through periods where we're not doing anything and you know i also know actors who will just get together from time to time and just read a play together or work a couple of scenes a friend of mine was doing a zoom improv group the other night um you know it not, most of this stuff won't won't help to pay your bills unfortunately but it might just keep you sane so that a, you remain sane, uh, but B, you know, when the audition, the, you know, when an audition does come along, that you're not in some kind of black dog funk and you're able to give of your best in the audition and hopefully get the job, you know. Mm. So it's all sort of interrelated. I remember once coming out of a underground to do some work in London and I was with Joe, one of our trainers. Now, we were probably passing through London to go on a train up north, as we normally do, or did. And she saw the poster for 12 Angry Men. And she said, oh, I know a number of the people in that. And nearly all of them are, are working in the day. A lot of them have uh, jobs as teachers. They're doing that sort of thing. You talked about how fortunate you are to not have too long in between jobs. But so many actors these days can't really be actors unless they've got a you know a lovely wonderful um spouse who's doing terrifically well and supporting them or a private income they have to have other jobs i mean isn't that just sort of almost a fact of it or you could live in penury friend of ours she uh assists a casting director mm. um uh you know yes i mean yes i look, all i can stress is my astonishing good fortune. Because, I, as I think I said earlier, they were better actors than me at drama school. They really were. Um, I've got better over the years, but, um, you know, and I, and I, and you know, every time I do a job, almost without exception, there's someone, you know, they, you know, they might, you know, have a kind of, support a smaller supporting role but sometimes they might be someone who's just in for a day to shoot one scene mm. and i can think of numerous times when you know i as one of the regular characters on whatever television show it is or a film and i've you know done a scene with a person who 
arrive for the first time that morning and we will never see them again. And I mm. said, God, mate, that was fantastic. That was terrific. And they'll say, oh, was it all right? Yes. No, you were great. I mean, you were great. Um, and that's their one day. And as I said, it's not a meritocracy and it sort of isn't fair and it's sort of shit on some level. But, you know, presumably, um, you know, there are extremely good footballers who could quite literally run rings around the rest of us, you know, who are playing for teams where they earn a few hundred quid a, a week instead of tens, if not hundreds of thousands of pounds. It is interesting, isn't it? That whole debate of getting to a position in your acting career due to merit and graft, or as you're saying, none at all. You know, let's be honest, no very successful actors and actresses who are, you know, objectively crap, you know, in fairness, um, you know, they might have a sort of narrow niche, um, but, you know, you know, they, you know, there might be a thing they do, you know, actually pretty well. Yeah. Or, you know, whatever, you know, it's, it's very rare where, you know, you see someone, you know, who's in some wildly successful television program and you think, bloody hell, how the, you know, was, was everyone unavailable or, you know, I'm being mean now. It is rare to get people who are unwatchable, who are constantly working. Maybe actors have had to get that much better. Now we have a plethora of pay-per-view streaming channels and it looks like, well, we're well beyond the tipping point of reality TV. We still have reality TV shows, but we seems we're finally in an age where there is work for actors. Listen, yeah. Terry, 10 years ago, I was telling anyone who would listen, which essentially meant my small children, that, you know, my business was over. Mm. It was done, done and dusted. It was just going to be reality TV and no one was going to... Why would you pay millions of pounds for quality drama when you can get, a, you know, you can pay, you know, get a reality TV show for 100 grand that will get better ratings it's you know i was like the you know the economics alone but thank god not only did it survive it's flourished and you know certainly you know talking about how wages have changed over the years when i first started out um you know getting an american tv show was like finding a unicorn mm. it just sort of didn't ha you'd hear about people who'd got an american tv show and you, you kind of go what how? How? Where? Um, you know, nowadays I do more auditions and read more scripts, I would, I would say, for, you know, essentially American television than I do for British. I then wanted to know if, like my Blake household, Wednesday in lockdown was treat night and takeaway night and what he was up to this evening. Um, Jesus, what am I doing? Well, I'll tell you, actually, you know what I'm doing? I'll tell you, I'll tell you what I'm doing. The book, which I am in the process of adapting, right? Yeah. Um, I've written about 50 odd pages and I thought, oh, I suppose I better send it to my father. <laughs> I phoned my dad yesterday and went, do you remember I vaguely mentioned, he went, yeah. I said, well, I've written 50 pages and he, you know, and he was, he was very encouraging. He said, Jesus, well done. And I said, do you mind if I send it to you and just tell me, you know, just give me some, just, I, I, you know, I want some notes. Um, because he'll, you know, because I'm concentrating on trying to write 
good lines. Uh, but he'll be more aware of the fact that my structure is 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 all over the place, uh, which is actually much more helpful. So I just need to proofread it. I've, I've proofread half of it. I need to proofread the, the other 25 pages and then email it to my dad uh, tonight. So that's what I'm going to do for the next hour after, um, after I come off with you. And then I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to watch the fourth episode of the first series of a show called Rami. R-A-M for Mother Y. Mm-hmm. And it's an American show, and it's about this Egyptian-American young man living in New York. And what's it like? Um, I'm sure there must be a sort of corollary. I'm, I'm going to say there's a show in Britain that my kids love called Friday Night Dinner. You know, it's a sort of slightly esoteric, culturally placed comedy show, Right. You know, he's this, you know, he's, he's a second generation, so born and bred in America, but he's an Egyptian, he's Muslim, and he's living in New York. And it's just a kind of commentary and insight into that culture, uh, you know, that sort of subset of, of America. Um, you know, it's no different, I guess, to having a show, you know, that was set in a sort of Jewish community or an Italian-American community or a Hispanic community. But these guys are, um, you know, Egyptian, uh, Egyptian heritage Muslims in New York. And it's called Rami, and uh, he, which is the name of the lead character and actually the name of the actor uh, who wrote it as well. And I read a recommendation for it last week. And so I looked it up and... We subscribe to this website, which I must admit, a bit naughtily, I thought was like the Napster for film. But actually, it turned, my wife said, no, it isn't. We pay £15 a month subscription. And I said, oh, well, in that case, I'm all on board. It's called In Two, number two, Stream. And it's astonishing. It's an Aladdin's cave of American television. <laughs> Every, I think, I mean, I haven't tried it. But I suspect if I typed in I love Lucy, up would come Lucille Ball. Wow. As every, from what I can gather, every television program that's, you know, drama, comedy drama, you know, uh, fictional, whatever, uh, not, you know, reality, uh, that's ever been shown on American television. I started watching Your Honor, which is Brian Cranston's new show, mm. which has just come out relatively you know in the last six months in the states it's on into streams and it's possible that we're using a vpn and i'm breaking the law um i'm hoping that no one who will you know do anything about that uh, if it's true is listening to this podcast um if it is mayor culpa um look kindly on me but anyway into streams rami's on there along with everything else uh, 15 quid a month or something, best money I've ever spent. I then told Ed about a memory I had when I was about 14 years old, when I was at his house in a holiday period, and I walked into where his father was writing, and he was kind of having a break. I think he was probably having a cigarette at the time, and I just said, do you mind if I just ask you, um, is this really easy? All these wonderful ideas just come to you, and you trot them out, and he said to me, oh, no, you have heard of the 
99% perspiration, 1% inspiration, haven't you? It really is that way round. And I remember thinking, golly, this writing larks hard. Yeah, it was a shock to me when I learned that, you know, my dad's writing process was 99% perspiration because I'd imagined it was the other way around. Yeah, I mean, it's not, it's not quite that simple because essentially, um, you know, he spends months and months and months, you know, tinkering under the bonnet and kind of kicking the tires and looking under the seats, etc. If you can sort of, if you're willing to go with this analogy and only after months and months and months, does he put the key in and try and turn right. the engine over. Mm. And at that point he might spend, you know, weeks and weeks, you know, getting the engine started and then it conks out and then he's got to, you know, this is a terrible analogy, but what I mean is that he can have lots of false starts and go up blind alleys and, you know, inverted commas, waste time. Um, and, you know, and he does do a huge amount of research. But once he, so for example, on Leopold's dad, you know, he was sort of struggling with it for, a long time, um, you know, kind of, you know, like two years or something, because he thought it might be about one thing and it, he kind of started to try and write it and it wasn't working and he couldn't find the play. And, and eventually he kind of really, you know, he was sort of thought, right, no, it's a family, it's a Jewish family. And he sort of realised it was going to, some, to, in some respects, mirror his own family, my family. Uh, and the, the kind of, the thing that sort of released, not the floodwaters, but the waters, was he decided to set it in Vienna, which was a city mm. he knew well from two previous plays. He knew the period well from two, two previous plays. And he suddenly went, great, okay, I know this place. I know this place. I know the kind of people. I know how they sound. And that was what got him on his way. And, and mm. at that point, he then wrote a three-hour play with, you know, 30 characters in, like, three and a half months, you know, which really is astonishingly quickly. Um, chasing his tail and reading and, you know, having false starts before that point. So, mm. you know, he sort of got his 99% perspiration out of the way all, you know, over a long period of time. And then once inspiration struck, uh, it didn't fall out of him. But, you know, then then he was sort of able to get up ahead of steam. He, the way he writes, he's all about momentum. And when mm. I was a child, he would sometimes go and stay in a hotel. He'd go and stay in the Holiday Inn in Slough. He, you know, he needs, he needs not just hours uninterrupted. He needs days, weeks uninterrupted to all intents and purposes. And... And he would go and stay in a hotel, you know, to crack a play. And he'd also work, you know, his best working hours were always 9pm to 3am because mm. the house was quiet. I then shared with Ed a memory I had of when his mum came to see me in a play, which I think was my first or one of my very early professional first outings. And it was directed by a friend of hers and she was called Gillian Gregory. She'd been the choreographer on Me and My Girl, and then she directed this musical I was in 
which was having its go at the old fire station Oxford where they did some tryout um, quite a lot of tryout musicals that they then hoped would transfer however this one was called Freddy's and it was about ex-Vietnam veterans who would get together in a cafe called Freddy's in order to console each other and then there was a new young lad getting married falling in love and it had songs like this Keep it simple, nothing frilly like fish and chips in Piccadilly. That was a song about them reinventing the menu. But it was such a personal project for the writer um, whose husband had been a Vietnam vet and it was kind of helping her cope. And I think there really had been a cafe. It uh, didn't transfer. I can't wait. I, listen, I'm going to revive it. Ed then sweetly offers... We've all done crap. I then thank Ed so much for giving all of his time battling with the technological challenges that have resulted in me adding in more sound sections for this time and leaving him with all his wonderful Russian memorabilia behind him. I suggest that my middle daughter might impress her teachers by naming this propaganda artist that he so flourishingly displays. Hey, she should do. And funny enough, actually, my children, I don't know what you did at school, but... You know, my kids are doing the First World War. They're doing the Soviet Union. Mm. And I gave up history. And I, it's my great regret from school. Um, you know, we, I, we were doing, I, and, and this is absolutely true, I, no word of a lie. We were doing the fur trade in 17th century Canada. That was what we learned in history when I was 14. The fur trade. The fur trade on the St. Lawrence in, in, in 17th century Canada. And look, I can say with near certainty that the fur trade on the St. Lawrence in the, in the 17th century wasn't even of interest to people who were fur trading on the St. Lawrence <laughs> in the 17th century. As for the history teacher himself... Um, he looked a bit like... He looked like a cross between Trotsky and Rasputin. I then sing highly the praises of Mrs. Blake, my biology, chemistry, science teaching wife, and that these days there are less people entering the profession who, A, don't like really the subject or the art of teaching, or, for that matter, really like children. And I tell him how during lockdown I bring her cups of tea and as I walk out she'll say something I'll catch a snippet of her telling the class about a gamete and I realized that Mr Mannix you did a cracking job getting me a C in my biology. I then thank Ed again for letting me ask him all these questions where he really hasn't filtered anything and just allowed us to discuss so many different topics with such openness. Jerry it's been a real pleasure and thank you for asking me on and I mean your listeners will be unaware uh, that the seven minutes of usable material which they've just heard uh, was was um, drawn from over an hour and a half. Don't worry, we're really going now. Thanks, Jerry. All the best. Lots of love. Bob and Jeremy's Conflap. The Reality Podcast. Thank you.